We want to welcome you to the Bible teaching ministry of Fellowship Bible Church, where our desire is to honor God by faithful obedience to His Word. If you want to understand the Bible better, please continue to listen as Pastor Matt Postiff explains and applies the biblical text one verse at a time. You can reach us with questions or for more teaching audio and print material at our website, fbcaa.org. You can also watch our services live at fbcaa.org live. We want to thank you for listening and pray that you will be edified. Join us now as Pastor Postiff opens God's Word. Please open your Bibles to Acts chapter 10 this morning, Acts chapter 10. We'll pick up in our reading through the book of Acts. This morning's chapter is an interesting one, as uh, we see that uh, Peter learns that God's work of redeeming people is not just for the Jewish nation, but is expanded to all people, to the Gentiles and Jews alike. And uh, he reveals this to him in a very interesting way, which we'll read about in just a moment in Acts chapter 10. Beginning in verse 1, though, it reads, There was a certain man in Caesarea called Cornelius, a centurion of what was called the Italian Regiment, a devout man and one feared, who feared God with all his household, who gave alms generously to the people and prayed to God always. About the ninth hour of the day, he saw clearly in a vision an angel of God coming in and saying to him, Cornelius. And when he observed him, he was afraid and said, What is it, Lord? So he said to him, Your prayers and your alms have come up for a memorial before God. Now send men to Joppa and send for Simon, whose surname is Peter. He is lodging with Simon, a tanner, whose house is by the sea. He will tell you what you must do. And when the angel who spoke to him had departed, Cornelius called two of his household servants and a devout soldier from among those who waited on him continually. So when he had explained all these things to them, he sent them to Joppa. The next day, as they went on their journey and draw, drew near the city, Paul went, excuse me, Peter went up on the housetop to pray about the sixth hour. Then he became very hungry and wanted to eat. But while they made ready, that is the meal, he fell into a trance and saw heaven opened in an object like a great sheet bound at the four corners descending to him and let down to the earth. In it were all kinds of four-footed animals of the earth, wild beasts, creeping things, and birds of the air. And a voice came to, to him, Rise, Peter, kill, and eat. But Peter said, Not so, Lord, for I have never eaten anything common or unclean, otherwise, in other words, unholy or defiled. And a voice spoke to him again the second time, What God has cleansed, you must not call common. This was done three times, and the object was taken up into heaven again. Verse 17, Now while Peter wondered within himself what this vision which he had seen meant, behold, the men who had been sent from Cornelius had made inquiry for Simon's house and stood before the gate. And they called and asked whether Simon, whose surname was Peter, was lodging there. While Peter thought about the vision, the Spirit said to him, Behold, three men are seeking you. Arise, therefore, go and go down and go with them, doubting nothing, for I have sent them. Then Peter went down to the men who had been, who had been sent to him from Cornelius and said, Yes, I am he whom you seek. For what reason have you come? 
And they said, Cornelius the centurion, a just man, one who fears God and has a good reputation among all the nation of the Jews, was divinely instructed by a holy angel to summon you to this to his house and to hear words from you. Then he invited them in and lodged them. On the next day, Peter went away with them, and some brethren from Joppa accompanied him. In the following day, they entered Caesarea. Now Cornelius was waiting for them and had called together his relatives and close friends. As Peter was coming in, Cornelius met him and fell down at his feet and worshipped him. But Peter lifted him up, saying, Stand up, I myself am also a man. And as he talked with him, he went in and found many who had come together. Then he said to them, You know how unlawful it is for a Jewish man to keep company with or go to one of, any, of another nation. But God has shown me that I should not call any man common or unclean. Therefore, I came without objection as soon as I was sent forth. I ask, then, for what reason have you sent for me? So Cornelius said, Four days ago I was fasting until this hour. And at the ninth hour I prayed in my house, and behold, a man stood before me in bright clothing and said, Cornelius, your, prayers has, your prayer has been heard, and your alms are remembered in the sight of God. Send therefore to Joppa and call Simon here, whose surname is Peter. He is lodging in the house of Simon, a tanner by the sea. When he comes, he will speak to you. So I sent to you immediately, and you have done well to come. Now therefore, we are all present before God to hear all the things commanded you by God. Would the Lord give us opportunity like that? A room full of people willing and wanting to hear God's word. We ought to pray for that opportunity. Verse 34, Then Peter opened his mouth and said, In truth, I perceive that God shows no partiality. But in every nation, whoever fears him and works righteousness is accepted by him. The word which God sent to the children of Israel, preaching peace through Jesus Christ, he is Lord of all. That word you know, which was proclaimed throughout all Judea, and began from Galilee after the baptism which John preached, how God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and with power, who went about doing good and healing all who were oppressed by the devil, for God was with him. And we are witnesses of all things which he did both in the land of the Jews and in Jerusalem, whom they killed by hanging on a tree. Him God raised up on the third day and showed him openly, not to all the people, but to witnesses chosen before by God, even to us who ate and drank with him after he arose from the dead. And he commanded us to preach to the people and to testify that it is he who was ordained by God to be judge of the living and the dead. To him all the prophets witness that through his name, whoever believes in him will receive remission of sins. While Peter was still speaking these words, the Holy Spirit fell upon all those who heard the word. And those of the circumcision who believed were astonished, as many as came with Peter, because the gift of the Holy Spirit had been poured out on the Gentiles also, for they heard them speak with tongues and magnify God. Then Peter answered, Can anyone forbid water that these should not be baptized, who have received the Holy Spirit just as we have? And he commanded them to be baptized in the name of the Lord. Then they asked him to stay a few days. May the Lord bless the reading of his word.
right, let's turn to Genesis chapter 25, please. occurred to me to say again, I say this in different ways at different times, but we are a Bible church, a word-centered ministry. So a good bit of our time together is spent in the Word of God as we do on each service, give a portion of it. And the reason that that is, I alluded to earlier in my prayer, and that is because the Word of God is the Word of God. God spoke it. He gave it to his prophets, to the apostles, to his servants. He also inspired the text of Scripture, by which we mean that he worked a miracle on those authors of Holy Scripture, moving them along as he so desired, so that what they wrote would be exactly the Word of God, not with any addition nor with any omission. It's exactly 100% true and accurate to what he wants to convey to us, and as such, it is God's Holy Word. Uh, If you're interested in reading more about this, um, I suggest you look up a fellow named Michael Kruger, K-R-U-G-E-R, who has written on the topic called the canon of Scripture, C-A-N-O-N, the rule of Scripture. And he helpfully talks about, as we do in our bibliology classes in Bible college and seminary, speak about the internal to the Scripture's testimony to its truth. We talk about the external testimonies from history, and I also would add the external uh, visibly visible work of God through this book in the hearts and lives of people that he's transformed. He also convinces us who are Christians that this word is true and we embrace it because of the work of the Spirit of God internally to us. So there's really an internal argument for the for internal to the text, but also internal to us as believers, and then, of course, the external evidence as well. There are a number of lines of of thinking that you can uh, pursue to uh, help kind of buttress your understanding that this is God's word and not simply the word of man that has uh, come down to us. And so we take it very seriously, and we're showing that here in Genesis. We, we uh, sang about um, the cross just now. And uh, we're not there yet in history in terms of Genesis. We're uh, getting there. The Lord is laying the foundation. And we're returning to the account of Abraham now at the end of his life in chapter 25. And it says, Abraham again took a wife, and her name was Keturah. This is after chapter 23, remember, when uh, Sarah had passed away. And then chapter 24, where a bride is sought and discovered for his son Isaac. And so he takes a wife named Keturah. And um, I think I have a chronological note in uh, several, actually, in my uh, sermon notes there, which you have in front of you, or they're on the church website, where you can see uh, that uh, she was 127 when she passed. He was 137. He died when he was 175. We'll read that just now. So he had some years yet left in his life uh, after uh, his first wife passed. And it says, and she bore him Zimran, Jokshan, Medan, Midian, Ishbak, and Shua. Jokshan begot Sheba and Dedan, and the sons of Dedan were Asherim, Letushim, and Leumim. And the sons of Midian were Ephah, Epher, Hanok, Abida, and Eldaah. All these were the children of Keturah. And Abraham gave all that he had to Isaac, 
But Abraham gave gifts to the sons of the concubines which Abraham had, and while he was still living, he sent them eastward, away from Isaac his son, to the country of the east. So we're, we're at the end of his life. He's successfully secured a wife for Isaac, and uh, that was very important to him because of the continuance of the Abrahamic covenant. And just as a father, as a parent, don't you want certain things for your children, them to get off into life and find a spouse and have a family, and you know, particularly before you depart. It's nice to have those things moving along in that direction. And, and Abraham then went and found another wife for himself after the death of Sarah. But that's not the focus of this chapter. We're going to be looking at the family line and history of Isaac. Remember that the book of Genesis is structured around a number of segments uh, called generational segments uh, or genealogies of the main characters. There is the kind of family history of Adam, Noah, Shem, Terah, uh, Ishmael, Isaac, Esau, and then Jacob, which we'll come to later. And uh, so we've discussed, we're just coming to the end really up here to 2511 to the end of that history for Abraham. One of those entire sections is contained in verses 12 to 18 about Ishmael, and then the next section begins at chapter 25, 19. So we're in a real kind of turning point in the book, if you will. Uh, But we don't have to focus there as much as uh, we will on the rest of this. So Abraham uh, is going to pass away here in these first 11 verses. And uh, the rest of his offspring are listed in the opening verses of chapter 25 with six direct children, several grandchildren and great-grandchildren, and some with famous names, I'll say, ones that we hear of later, Midian and Asherim. As he neared death, he ensured that Isaac would be his sole heir, except that he gave gifts to his other sons, including those of his concubines. Now, uh, when it says that he gives everything to Isaac, that's That was predicted, that was necessary. Isaac is the heir of the Abrahamic family line, and uh, yet he didn't let his other sons go off without anything. He gave them things and sent them off uh, on their uh, life journey to the east. But it says, um, somebody might have a question, so I thought I would deal with this about the concubines here. Uh, Unfortunately, his family was just a little larger than the offspring of Sarah, Sarah with uh, Isaac, He also had Hagar, and that's where Ishmael and his whole line came from. That's Genesis 16, and then Keturah as well. And from what I can tell, these two later wives, Hagar and Keturah, are what are called concubines, which basically means a wife of a lower social status than the original first wife. This was practiced commonly in polygamous societies, that there would be you know, the official wife, if I could say it that way, and then there would be other wives of a lesser social status. That's very foreign to our cultural thinking because we didn't grow up with it. Uh, we, we have to be careful about you know, laying judgment at the feet of those people for growing up in that kind of society. Of course, we compare it to Scripture and say, well, Abraham should have known better. He should have had one wife, uh, just like uh, Adam before and uh, his son Isaac. But this is just normal for them. They were people of their own time. 
Um, how do I know that Keturah, you might say, well, Keturah, she married uh, him after his first wife died, so how is she a concubine? Well, evidently, she still had a lower social status in that culture, like a, almost like a caste kind of thing or something. And uh, if I go to First Chronicles uh, in chapter 1, I believe it is, First Chronicles in the first chapter, in verse 32, the Bible says, Now the sons born to Keturah, Abraham's concubine. And then it lists the names. So the, the scripture specific that she had that lower social status. From our perspective, though, it's just polygamy. Uh, you can call it what you want to call it. You can put a fancy name to it. You can try to say, well, there's a wife of higher status and a wife of lower status, and so it doesn't really count or something. But look, you know, is a rose by any other name? It's the same thing. And so we don't make excuses about it. We're just saying that's the way that it was. Uh, and, you know, there's still people, people, groups, and cultures that still do that sort of thing today. Very foreign to our thinking again, but that's the way it was. So when it says that uh, he gave gifts to the sons of the concubines, I'm trying to say don't think that there was Sarah and Hagar and Keturah and a bunch of others. I think there was Sarah and concubine Hagar and concubine Keturah, and that's all that we need to read into the text because that's all that's there. Um, but Isaac was the undisputed heir of Abraham's estate. In fact, in, fact, in the earlier chapter, when uh, the servant Eliezer went to find a wife, uh, it says, And Sarah, my master's wife, bore a son to my master when she was old, and to him he has given all that he has. To him he has given all that he has. So even though Isaac was not his chronologically first born, he was the firstborn in terms of his prominence. Okay, And that, I think, by the way, ought to inform our reading of Jesus as firstborn. The emphasis is not on the fact that he was born, as, if, as in he was created. The emphasis is on the first part. That is, he has the primacy. He has the preeminence. He is the one who is heir of all things. That's what we should think of when we think of firstborn, not just emphasize the idea of being created or born or started, have a, having a starting point. Now, Sarah died at the age of 127. We saw that last time. Uh, she was 10 years younger than Abraham, so he was 137 when she died. And this passage goes on to tell us that uh, he lived to 175, so 38 years more. Let's, let's go ahead and read that. This is the sum of the years of Abraham's life, which he lived 175 years. Verse 8, then Abraham breathed his last and died a good old age, an old man and full of years, and here's a euphemism, and he was gathered to his people. That's a good uh, way of saying that he passed away. They put him into the, the grave with all the rest that had gone before him. And his sons Isaac and Ishmael buried him in the cave of Machpelah, which is before Mamre, in the field of Ephron, the, of the son of Zoar, the Hittite, the field which Abraham purchased from the sons of Heth, there Abraham was buried, and Sarah, his wife. Remember that whole deal about buying a burial plot? We focused on that, chapter 23. And it came to pass after the death of Abraham that God blessed his son Isaac, and Isaac dwelt at Beer Lahai Roy. Um, I never ceased to be amazed at the longevity of these folks. I mean, he was evidently 
could have been married to Keturah for 38 years after he was 137. 38 years, that's longer than a lot of people are married today their first time. You know? Oh, just amazing. It's a whole different ballgame. Some people lived to 75. He lived to 100 plus 75. So Abraham died having, having received part of the promises that God had made to him, namely that he would be personally blessed. But the Bible tells us that he did not see the fulfillment of the entire covenant. And I can, uh, you say, what do you mean by that? I mean, it's, uh, well, it's clear in Hebrews 11 that that's what happened. If I, I'm turning my Bible there to Hebrews 11 and verse number uh, 13, it says this, speaking of all the patriarchs, these, it says, all died in faith, not having received the promises, but having seen them afar off, were assured of them, embraced them, and confessed that they were strangers and pilgrims on the earth. I feel like I better just park there for a minute. You know, you have promises from God too, right? God's promised you eternal life. He's promised you these blessings. You see these things in the kingdom promises in the Old Testament and, and some uh, reflections of that and echoes of that in the New Testament. And you say, I'm not seeing it now, Lord. I'm praying for your kingdom to come. I'm hoping to see these things. I'm not seeing world peace and uh, the knowledge of the Lord filling the earth as the waters cover the sea and all those wonderful things. You are looking forward to those promises and many of us, if not all of us, if the Lord tarries long enough, will die not seeing those promises fulfilled. But we can say with the Old Testament patriarchs, I have seen them afar off. I am assured of them. I do embrace them. I do confess that I am a stranger and pilgrim on this earth. Can you take up that mindset with me? And say, if I don't see those things, if I don't see the rapture in my lifetime, if I don't see the unfolding of all of that until I am resurrected and I'm rejoined to all those in the kingdom, well, after the, at the rapture and then as we enter into the kingdom, that's okay. You don't have to see them now. Many of our forefathers have looked for those same things and they would say, I'm assured, even though I can't see, blessed are those who believe and yet have not seen, Thomas. Let us not be doubters, people who doubt the promises and the word of God, just because it doesn't come on our time, you know, our fast food time. We have to be more patient than that. And uh, we have to submit ourselves to the plan of God. He knows what he's doing, and we're going to see that in just a few moments in the big picture of what he's working on. So, uh, he was like these, like we are, uh, we like him, maybe rather I should say, that waiting for these promises did not have them fully uh, implemented. Uh, but his son, he saw his son off to start his life and God had blessed him in fulfillment of that covenant promise. Um, I should note too, just by way of um, chronology again, just interesting note. Remember when Abraham was a hundred, that's when Isaac was born, Isaac was married at 40. We'll see he uh, had children at 60 when the twins were born. And this means that Abraham was 160 when his grandsons came along. Okay, He lived to 175, so that means he was able to see those grandsons 
hopefully see them many times, several times, in that time period intervening for 15 years. But the text puts his death earlier in chapter 25, and then the kids are born later in chapter 25. What's the deal with that? Well, like any historian is permitted to do, the writer Moses here, under the inspiration of God, has topically put the material about Abraham together in one section, and then he moves on to the next section. It's sometimes too confusing to go from Abraham to this and back to Abraham and this and back to Abraham, kind of collect it all together, put it there, and then be done with that portion of Abraham's story and move on to Ishmael and then to Isaac. So we don't demand there to be a completely linear progression of time in the book when God has put enough information in there for us to be able to do the math and figure it out. No problem, okay? We don't charge God with error or something like that uh, because of that. So it's not always arranged chronologically, and it doesn't have to be to fulfill God's purpose. We see the same thing in um, the Gospels. Sometimes the authors change the order of events, uh, as it were. They're not really saying that they, have, they happen in this particular order, but they, that serves the purpose for which they write. And there's no reason for our minds to, to, you know, to be exploded because of that and say, oh, well, there's contradictions in God's word. Not at all. They each had their own purpose, these different human authors under God's uh, work in his spirit. So anyway, we move on to Ishmael quickly. We just see uh, here he's listed as having 12 sons. Uh, I won't go through all those names there. We can do that another time if you want. We have read through those in the past. But um, it's not just a coincidence that he has 12 sons, uh, just like the next generation when Jacob had 12 sons. But if you go back and look and remember in Genesis 17, uh, God said this after his birth um, in Genesis 17 and verse 20, when Abraham said, oh, that Ishmael might live before you. You know, I've already had a son. Can't he be the promised one? And God says, no, Sarah's going to bear you a son, a natural-born son. And as for Ishmael, I have heard you. Behold, I have blessed him, and I will make him fruitful and will multiply him exceedingly. He shall beget 12 princes, and I will make him a great nation. So there you go. The Bible predicts, and this comes to pass, that that actually happened. So 12 sons. Ishmael lived to 137. He lived 48 years beyond the death of his father. And then uh, we see, too, a note down here in um, oh, around verse 18 where he lived, and it's actually in parentheses here. They dwelt from Havilah as far as Shur. And I put a note in my notes there for you about the uh, the, uh, geography of this area. It's not exactly clear where these are today. Um, but they, they certainly understood where they were. All right, now we move on to verse number 19. Let me read this. This is the genealogy of Isaac. Okay, new section of the book. Could have a, new, a chapter division here, but the, uh, the, uh, the editors uh, did not decide to do that back in the day when they divided up the Bible into chapters. So Abraham's son, Abraham begot Isaac. Isaac was 40 years old when he took Rebekah as wife, the daughter of Bethuel, the Syrian of Paddan Aram, the sister of Laban, the Syrian. Now, Isaac pleaded with the Lord for his wife because she was barren. And the Lord granted his plea, and Rebekah, his wife, conceived. You have to understand, if you look at the, uh, later in the text, it says Jacob, or Isaac, rather, was 60 years old when she bore them. 
for the better part of 20 years, they could not have children. Apparently, they didn't resort to the methods of their father and mother, of of Isaac's father and mother, to try to get children that way by surrogate, so to speak. But you can imagine this is quite a trial. In In a society where not having a child, being barren, is a sign, they think, of the displeasure of God, of the punishment of God, to not have a child is a very big burden on top of all that it is already for a young woman who wants to have a family. You know that feeling, right? And so they prayed. They asked God. This is interesting. It comes up again later on. Isaac pleaded with the Lord for his wife. And so they prayed, and God did permit the answer to come. But they got a little bit more than they bargained for. They just wanted one child. Just one, Lord. Well, they got two. Um, so, And the twins, I, I leave out the, a mention here of the illustration there. You can look at that in the notes uh, from one of our missionaries in the past years. But I go on then, and quickly it says, The children struggled together within her, and she said, If all is well, why am I like this? So she went to inquire of the Lord. Okay, moms who have been pregnant, you know the worry? Is that right? Is the baby okay? I need to get checked out. Uh, well, what was that movement? You know the feeling? Okay, now imagine an excessive amount of movement inside of you. It certainly probably doesn't make you feel comfortable, does it? And so Rebecca is having an extra amount of consternation because, as, at least as I picture it, these two twins inside of her are going at it. You know, imagine, uh, imagine two siblings close in age, twins or maybe just, you know, a year apart or something like that, and they're three and four years old or five and six or something, and they're going at it. Now imagine them in an enclosed space for nine months together, unable to get away from each other. You can't send them to their rooms to settle down. They're stuck. She didn't know what, I mean, they're in confined quarters duking it out. She didn't know what that meant until God told her. And she wondered, because she didn't have revelation until she got it, you know, is everything okay with me? This is not. This doesn't seem normal. Nobody that I talk to among my women friends says they had this going on. And you don't have ultrasound and OB doctors and all of that sort of thing. So what did she do about it? Well, what does the text say that she did about it? So she went to inquire of the Lord. In two back-to-back verses, they want children, so they pray to the Lord. They get children. And now they're worried about it, so what do they do? They pray to the Lord again. What do you suppose the pastor is going to tell you if you face a problem? Probably better pray to the Lord. (laughs) Ask him for his help. Ask him to give you insight and wisdom into this. And God answered Rebecca about this struggle, and he said, Two nations are in your womb. Two peoples shall be separated from your body. One people shall be stronger than the other, and the older shall serve the younger. 
Now, that was a very unusual statement because the younger should invariably serve the older firstborn. Now, for us, we think twins. When we think twins, we basically think, well, they're the exact same age. They're conceived at the same time. But for them, the one who came out first was the firstborn and had a primacy, had a a preeminence, a, a pride of place, no matter how many moments or few moments separated the birth of the two twins. Now, from this, we see this idea that there are two peoples, the older shall serve the younger. So when her days were fulfilled for her to give birth, indeed, there were twins, and, and they came out. But I wanted to pause here because somebody's going to say, what about this issue of Jacob and Esau and how God favored one and didn't favor the other? Now, I could just blow past that and uh, hope that some of you that haven't been introduced to this topic before just don't care about it and don't look into it. But somebody's going to ask a question about Malachi chapter 1 when it says that Jacob I have loved and Esau I have hated, or Romans chapter 9. Why don't we turn to Romans 9 because there is a, a super, super portion of Scripture that gives us some insight into this. It's in Romans chapter 9. Uh, around verse 14 in that area. And so what I try not to do here is shy away from the difficult topics, even though that might challenge your your mind and your spirit, and you might walk out of here and say, hmm, I scratch my head about that, or I don't agree with that, or whatever. You know, the Bible says, by the way, when... When somebody's preaching the word, if they're preaching from the text, which I'm really trying to do, you ought to be quick to listen, slow to speak, and slow to wrath. But invariably, in a message like this, somebody from the world or somebody that's not been properly taught from Scripture is going to hear this, and they're going to walk out of those back doors mad in violation of that text of Scripture because they haven't stopped to think about it, They haven't humbled themselves before God, as Paul is going to teach us here in Romans chapter 9. Let me read a few verses here. In verse number uh, 11, it says, or verse number uh, 10, rather, uh, Romans 9, verse 10, and not only this, but when Rebekah had also conceived by one man, even by our father Isaac, for the children not being yet born, nor having done any good or evil, that the purpose of God according to election might stand, not of works, but of him who calls, It was said to her, the older shall serve the younger. As it is written, Paul then pulls in Malachi, Jacob I have loved, but Esau I have hated. Masterful teaching here that he can draw back from Genesis chapter 25 and draw back from the last book of the Old Testament, Malachi. And now he's going to explain this to us. What shall we say then? Is there unrighteousness with God? Why would, some, why would he say that? Somebody is going to invariably say, he knows this. Somebody's going to object. If God chose one over the other, God is evil. Can you believe I just said those three words together in one sentence? That's what the objection is that Paul is now going to address. Is there unrighteousness with God? He says, absolutely not. Certainly not. There's more to this story than just stopping there and saying, well, if that's how God is, 
I'm not going to have anything to do with him. I don't associate with people like that. Verse 15, for he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whomever I will have mercy, and I will have compassion on whomever I will have compassion. So then, it is not of him who wills, nor of him who runs, but of God who shows mercy. For the scripture says to Pharaoh, here's an illustration, for this very purpose I've raised you up, that I may show my power in you, and that my name might be declared in all the earth. Therefore he has mercy on whom he wills, and whom he wills he hardens. You will say to me then, why does he still find fault? For who has resisted his will? Okay, so what's the objector saying here? Saying, well, if God chose me to be this way, then he can't complain that I'm this way. He can't tell me that I'm a sinner if he made me a sinner. So Paul responds, Indeed, O man, who are you to reply against God? Will the thing formed say to him who formed it, Why have you made me like this? Does not the potter have power over the clay from the same lump to make one vessel for honor and another for dishonor? What if God, now he's going to say this what if, but it's a, it's a rhetorical what if. He's making a, a statement of truth here. What if God, wanting to show his wrath and to make his power known, endured with much long-suffering the vessels of wrath prepared for destruction, that and that he might make known the riches of his glory on the vessels of mercy, which he had prepared beforehand for glory, even us whom he called, not of the Jews only, but also of the Gentiles. So let me explain. God has said in his word that he has chosen certain individuals to set his favor upon them. The Bible is full of this teaching. Um, Let me go there just now, although it's out of order with my notes. The Bible, again, I say, is full of this teaching that God has uh, set his favor on certain ones. Ephesians 1.4, just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and without blame before him in love. Or in 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 2, he says to those pilgrims who are chosen or elect according to the foreknowledge of God the Father. There's 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, 4. I'm doing this, to, reading all these to say, hey, we want to... We want a strong, firm foundation in this. We're not just making this up. 1 Thessalonians 1.4, Paul says to the Thessalonians, Knowing, beloved brothers, your election by God. Or 1 Thessalonians 5.9, listen to this, For God did not appoint us to wrath. This is what God has gifted us with, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. Or if you say, well, that's the Apostle Paul. Uh, well, I have to hold what he says with some suspicion. Uh, I want to listen to what Jesus says. Okay, John chapter 6, verse number 70. Jesus answered them, Did I not choose you, the twelve? Or John chapter 15, verse number 16. John 15, verse 16. Jesus says, You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you should bear fruit, and that your fruit should remain, that whatever you ask the Father in my name, he may give to you. And then verse number 19, John 15, 19. If you were of the world, the world would love its own. Yet because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Now, all of this is troublesome to some people, but let me give you two responses that you could have to this. Number one response, the kind of response that I have, 
the way that I follow is that I trust that what God does, he does perfectly well in accordance with his love, in accordance with his infinite wisdom, with his infinite knowledge, with his infinite holiness. I do not fault God for doing this, choosing as if it's some impingement on my freedom. In sin, I don't have any freedom. If you commit sin, Jesus said, John 8, 34, you are a slave of sin. Okay? I can't in my enslaved state complain that God chooses some to help them out of that state. Okay? I don't have any freedom. If I, before I'm a Christian, I have no freedom but the freedom to die. That's it. Every man and woman is destined for punishment and eternity apart from the Lord. We need somebody to help us, to choose us, to choose to help us in this state because it is a dire state. Spiritually speaking, I like to picture this. I mentioned one of the brothers yesterday as men and women, boys and girls who are in a pit of quicksand with no branches around to grab onto to help pull them out. Helpless in need of somebody to come and pull them out. Cannot pull themselves out. The more you struggle, the deeper you go. That's what our spiritual life is before we come to Jesus Christ. He's lifted us up out of the miry clay, set our feet upon a rock, put a new song in our mouths and our lips, and we sing that song of praise to God. So I take that teaching that I've just read about, many verses, in the direction of, I trust God, He knows what He's doing way better than I do. I mean, he's the potter, I'm the clay. He's got the brains, I don't. My brains are just clay relative to his. Would you, would you join me in that belief as well? We don't know anything compared to God. Our, our, our intelligence is like this, like an ant compared to the Lord. He's got everything all figured out. So there's another direction you can take this doctrine, and that is God is mean, he should stay out of our business, uh, this makes God evil, it makes us robots, or whatever other variation that you might find of this teaching, whatever, this thinking makes people mad at God. They get upset at God. But the problem is that this doctrine of God's election or choosing or whatever you call it, predestination, is very clearly taught in Scripture alongside of God's goodness and His love. I mean, why would people look, they look at the Bible and they say, well, it says God is love. Okay, that's true. It also says God makes this choice. It also says God allows people to be punished for their sins. It says all of those. How can you pick and choose just a couple of those that you like and leave the rest? Can't do that. Got to take it all. Now, this is explained in, in some great detail in the section of Scripture that we just read, but let me try to kind of bring it down here for us. Um. Paul explains that God is not guilty of, of evil hate towards people because he is the sovereign rule, ruler of the universe and he can have mercy on whomever he pleases and not on others. God is the determining factor in who is shown mercy. Paul says, not the person who wills or the person who runs. That's speaking of human effort. Pharaoh was the example of that. What it's saying is God has arranged things so that our individual salvation cannot be attributed to us at all. 
my achievement does not make me uh, favorable in the sight of God, does it? My achievements are, before I'm in Christ, are basically demerits, not merits, demerits. Uh, you know, I think I'm doing them to please God and I don't need Christ. They're really demerits. So he's arranged this setup so that we will not conclude that we are the great people that we may have thought that we were. Now, some have concluded that God is, you know, because of this, he cannot be critical of our faults. Since he's made me this way, I, he can't complain about my sin. But first of all, this is like the clay pot talking back to the potter. The creator has the power in the brains, not the created thing. God has the authority to make one vessel for one purpose and another vessel for another purpose. That is his right as king. You are not the king. Sorry to say, I'm not the king. Only Jesus and God the Father are king. So then he poses this hypothetical in verses 22 and 23, and I just want us to think now. This this takes a lot more thought than we're going to be able to give it in the next few minutes, but this is deep. God desires to demonstrate several things about himself. First of all, he wants to demonstrate his wrath against sin. He wants to show his power, and he wants to make known the riches of his mercy. Therefore, he patiently endures people who reject him so that he can make known his glory to those whom he has chosen for mercy. In other words, God has arranged things the way he has because it allows the creation to most clearly see, number one, his displeasure against sin. Number two, it allows us to see his magnificent mercy towards Jews and Gentiles, whom he has called. And three, the way God's arranged things, allow us to see how he delivers people from slavery into glorious liberty and the power that it takes to do that. You know the kind of power it takes to do that? It's basically the kind of power that it took to raise Jesus from the dead. That power, Ephesians tells us, is at work in us who have believed because we too have been raised from the dead, haven't we? Spiritual death to spiritual life. Okay, We also will be raised from physical death to physical life again if we pass away. Now, listen, for those who object. If God were to show wrath only, the created world would not be able to see the other side of God that is his mercy. But if God were to show mercy only, we would not see his utter disgust against sin. By showing both the goodness and severity over a long period of time, we see a fuller picture of God than we would if we, just, if we just had universalism. We wouldn't understand how God is upset against sin. And if we only had everybody going to hell, we wouldn't see God's mercy. We would see a truncated view of God in either one of those cases. And when we have both God's severity and his goodness, we see another feature of God come out, and that is his long-suffering. Because as people reject God, there are more people born who will believe in God 
And he exercises long-suffering towards those who are rejecting him so that he can show more mercy to those who will accept him. And so that endurance that he has shows his great long-suffering and patience because he wants to show mercy. And so God's way is a marvelous way to show a more complete picture of the reality of God. But this necessitates the existence of evil. How are you going to show mercy to people who are just perfect goody-two-shoes? That's not showing mercy. That's just giving them what they deserve if they're perfect. Mercy is shown to those who do evil. And this also gives doubts to those people who are laser-focused on one aspect of God's plan while not seeing the other aspects of God's plan. What do I mean? If you're, focused on the, if you're focused on universalism, the mercy of God, as opposed to his wrath, or you're focused on his wrath as opposed to his mercy, you get that incomplete picture. It's, it does, that incomplete picture doesn't exist, but it only exists in your mind because you're just looking at a narrow slice of truth. And you're saying, well, God does this or God does this, and that makes God evil and unrighteous, and that's going to justify myself. Those doubts will lessen as you embrace the entire revelation of God, who God is and what he does. And that's my brief answer in 10 or 15 minutes of kind of the problem of evil and how God's goodness and severity mix together in a perfect mixture in this world. It's a big concept. It takes a lot more time to think about this, but I do want you to remember, if you remember nothing else, and you get to struggling about the problem of evil or the problem of divine punishment or whatever, you remember 922. What if God wanting to show, what if God wanting to show something more than what you have seen before allowed all of these things to broaden your expansive view of who he is so that you don't just think that he's like the gods of the nations or that he's a God like yourself, because he's not, he's not a man. He's not the son of man. He's much different than we are. Now, we go back to finish the narrative in Genesis chapter 25, and we see that Esau is born, and they named him Harry. Not H-A-R-R-Y, H-A-I-R-Y, because it, te- it tells us, and that would be unique, wouldn't it? I mean, it's, it's enough. We always remark on when a baby's born, oh, they're as bald as anything. Or look at that full head of hair. I mean, it comes out as bed head to begin with. It needs to, you know, a comb or a bow. Uh, this fellow comes out, and he was like a hairy garment all over. So they called his name Esau, Harry, after his brother came out, and his hand took hold of his brother's heel. Now, that's another thing. The midwife is saying, look at the second child is grabbing onto the first one. That would be strange. So his name was called Jacob, that is, one who grabs the heel. He's the supplanter because he he supplanted his brother. He took his place, although he did so with subterfuge. You know, he used deceit in the end to achieve the desired outcome. The last two verses of this section, 27 and 28, tell us how they grew. Uh, Esau was a skillful hunter. You know, he's a rugged outdoorsman. But Jacob was a mild man dwelling in tents. So he was an indoor kind of guy. Jacob was, or Esau was an outdoor kind of guy. 
And in part because of this, you begin to see a little bit of favoritism develop from the parents to the children. And I'm warning you as parents, and I warn myself of this with our three sons, you cannot be showing favoritism to them. Like one son, maybe he's maybe this one's more like Isaac. He has more, you know, kind of things in tune with what Isaac is interested in. And and uh, and one with Rebecca, you know, she likes the one that's kind of the the home, you know, the the stay-at-home kind of boy and that sort of thing. And so she has certain desires and interests, and and those kind of mix together, and so they begin to show favoritism. That will come up later again as uh, they deal with this issue of the uh, birthright. And then it brings us to the birthright in the sale of it in 25 through 29, um, or sorry, uh, 29 through 34, chapter 25. Uh, I'll let you read that whole thing, but basically Esau, for a pot of stew, sold his birthright. Jacob kind of, uh, you know, got it from him. And he says, Esau says, look, I'm about to die. What is this birthright to me? Give me some food. So Jacob said, swear to me as of this day. And he did. And um, it says at the end of verse 34, and this is the key thing, thus Esau despised his birthright. Now, what does that mean? Why is that a problem? Well, you might say, well, it doesn't seem very much to me. When I was a young person reading this, I just didn't understand what you have to put together is a couple of things, mainly Abraham's covenant, God's covenant to Abraham and Esau's firstborn place. Put those together and say, wait a minute. Esau is technically the heir of this covenant as the firstborn. But he's, he's, he wasn't saying, look, it doesn't matter the order I was born or my inheritance, much worse than that. He was treating lightly the promise of God in the Abrahamic covenant indicating a lack of respect for the promises that the birthright entitled him to. And I think we can suggest that he was rejecting his upbringing and not wanting to be involved in the plan of God in the Abrahamic covenant. When he realized what he had done, in Hebrews 12, 16 to 17, it says that he sought a place of repentance with tears, but it was too late. For him to receive the blessing of the Abrahamic covenant, we know the backstory of that, but it was too late for him to get that birthright back. His despising of it had permanent consequences. Now, there are other things for which we might decide we'd like to have or do or re- recover, and it might be too late in this life. This says nothing about the doctrine of salvation. This says something about the doctrine of a birthright that you've rejected, and that there is a time in which repentance doesn't recover everything that was lost. The matter of salvation, for other things like salvation, the door, I believe, is open until we die. But then, what about after that? The Bible gives no hope for a second chance at salvation, and so at that point, you know, The rich man in Hades in Luke chapter 16, he doesn't like being there. He wants to send somebody to his brothers to tell them not to come to that place. Jesus tells this account. I think it's a true account or a true-to-life account, we could say. 
And, uh, but he can't get out of there. He can't undo it now and say, oh, I wish, and I should have repented and all of that. It was too late at that point, it appears, from all indications in Scripture. So this is all interesting history. I, I hope you would agree, but it's more than that. It shows God's providential direction of world history and his personal interest in individuals uh, with whom he's working. It begins to warn us of partiality, parents, and thoroughly calls us back from despising the promises of God. If you walk away from God's promises like Esau, you walk away from God into a frightful and dark, dark situation. So we call you not to do that today, but stay close to him. Shall we pray? Father, I ask that you would take these words and help us to understand them. May they have some utility in our life today uh, in a practical way, not just be theory, but knowledge that is practical, put into our life and lived. Help us to acknowledge that you are the sovereign, provident controller of all things. May we follow you with faith. Even if we can't see those things that are promised to us afar off, but we believe that they're coming nonetheless. In Jesus' name, amen.